Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. You're about to meet Mike Campion, the founder of Killer Shade. So Killer Shade was in an interesting business. They were those guys that create awnings and shade structured in outdoor living areas. So, you know, uh, playgrounds, schools, um, parking garages. And he built up a nice business, three million, more than three million in revenue, actually, $700,000 in profit. The problem in the business was, and the thing that stressed him out the most was cash flow because these projects had very, very long uh, life cycles and it took him a long time to get paid. And eventually he got to a point where he just didn't want to have that stress in his life anymore. And he decided to sell. He was able to find a buyer, but that's when the problem started. I'll let Mike tell you the rest of the story. Mike, thanks for joining us. I am here, I am awake, and I am ready to go, my friend. <laughs> That's great. Tell me about Killer Shade, this business you sold. Uh, yeah, sure. What do you want to know? There's, uh, I could go on for hours and bore you, so you tell me what you want to hear, and I'll, I'll speak up. What did you sell? What was the business in? <laughs> That's a great place to start, isn't it? Um, well, we live in Phoenix, Arizona, so two-thirds of the United States probably won't be familiar, but the rest of us, you all know. Uh, we did kind of like the, the name sounds we show we sold big commercial shade structures over like pools and schools and playgrounds um our average project just to get because a lot of people get confused like with awnings and things you do at a home our average project was probably around a hundred thousand dollars and it's large canopies outdoor over large spaces a lot to government work a lot to contractors on like churches things like that and that's important in phoenix arizona where it's sunny 200 days a year and 110 degrees in august yeah, it got so it is so uh, bad, and uh, here in Phoenix, at least, where they, there's legislation uh, that said if you have X amount of schoolyard, you must have Y amount of shaded area because it's it's not just to be it's not just comfort, but it's uh, skin cancer, melanoma. So it really is a big issue here. Actually, the industry started in Australia, and uh, where it's it's kind of rampant there. So everyone. Your Australian audience will go, yeah, of course, we have those everywhere, uh, transplanted here to the States, and it's kind of all along like Florida, Texas, Phoenix, Arizona, you know, Arizona Nevada, California. Those are kind of the states where uh, they're pretty prevalent. Great. And, and how did you get into that business? Dumb luck, I guess. I uh, I'd actually gotten divorced uh, almost 15, no, almost 10 years ago now. And I had kind of an awning fabric company that did bags and covers and stuff like that. We just did a little bit of the fabric work of that. And um, this actually might help for your audience. We were, we had like five little tiny businesses, each doing four, five, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars each. And when I got divorced, I kind of started this new company and said, we're only going to do shade structures. We're only going to do commercial, nothing residential, no bags, no covers, no tents, no nothing else, no awnings, just big commercial shade structures because we wanted to focus. And that thing took off and did much, much uh, more kind of having one big business, so to speak, than you know, five little tiny businesses. So that's, I kind of wandered into it by, I bought a business that did one thing and we kind of started doing it. And as I learned when I got divorced, I cut everything else out and that's the one I picked. Cause that's counterintuitive for a lot of people. They would say, you know, have lots of buyers in the fire, have lots of diversity. Why was focusing on one thing, the secret to your growth? Well, for me, it was just, I'm a, I'm sure if the, if the, if your audience is entrepreneurs, which I believe it is, you guys all have that same shiny object syndrome that I suffer from. So it's just, instead of really, it's almost like if you're digging, if you're digging for oil or digging for a well, you go out in your backyard, you start, you dig, you get six feet and then 
you don't hit anything. You're like, well, this sucks. I'm going to go over here and dig another hole and, and you get six feet and this sucks. And at the end of the day or end of the year, you've got a hundred six foot holes and none of them did you anything. Whereas if you just had put one 600 foot hole, you got the water that you're looking for. So I think too many irons in the fire is too many opportunities to not go do the things that actually need to be done and be like, Oh, there's this fun thing I can do over in this business. And I'll ignore the thing that really needs to be done in that business. And you can find yourself just spinning and spinning and spinning and kind of jumping from one little fire to the other without really getting any traction anywhere. Got it. Got it. So how big did you get this company before you you sold it? What was the, in terms of revenue or number of employees, that kind of stuff? Well, we sold it mid-year. So we were on track for somewhere between three and four million, but we were crushing like seven, 800,000 in profit. So we were hugely profitable. That's fantastic. What drove most of the profit? Why, why so profitable? I would have thought it would have been a competitive, you know, competitive business. So we, yeah, we had a huge competitive advantage. I felt that I was kind of given to the guy that bought it was there were, we were right in the middle. So the, the competitive landscape was there was two or three, like $60 million companies that had hundreds of employees, engineer, just overhead coming out of everywhere that could just do these big, big, massive multi-million dollar projects. Um, we couldn't do that. The biggest project we'd taken was just about a million. Um, and then there was a lot of small guys that were like kind of out of their garage or just little co- companies that couldn't handle like a half a million dollar project like we could. So we were one of the very, very few companies that were big enough to do a 500,000 or a million dollar project. And we were cleared with the government because they're real fussy about who they work with. Um, but we didn't have the overhead of the $60 million company. So something that might cost us $200,000 would cost them $400,000. And we both sell it for $500,000. And uh, it doesn't take long to make some money that way. Got it. So you're, you're generating three, four million in revenue, big chunk of that seven, 700 grants falling to the bottom line. Um, why sell? What was the triggering event that made you think, man, I want to sell this business? Couple things. First of all, I was so sick of construction and we were actually small enough because we were doing big enough projects where I was kind of involved, especially the larger ones, the little ones we had staff handle, but the larger ones, uh, I was still dealing with the architect or the contractor or the city manager or you know, some combination thereof. And construction is just a stressful kind of a gig. It's not like, you know, I'm selling boxed products where here's your shirt, you give me the money and the transaction is kind of done. Um, there's always things that are kind of going on and it was very, uh, so that was the first half. It was just a lot of headache that wasn't for me. The second half was financially, um, it was a bear cause we were growing fast and we we're doing extremely well, but, uh, it was a cash suck. Like if you, we, you know, we, we did construction. So we do a hundred thousand dollars worth of work, uh, this month and we'd bill for it, you know, the, the fifth of next month. And then the, the architect would approve the bill a month after that. And the city would pay the general contractor a month after that. So we had this massive, I think when we sold, we had almost a million bucks in receivables. Um, so all that came off of cash, right? You know, that's if say you've got a million dollars in receivables, that's a million dollars of profit that you haven't realized and you're not going to realize as long as you keep growing until you sell it. So that was stressing you out. I mean, but I mean, I guess, wasn't there a way to kind of work through that? Was there any part of the, that said, this is a great business. We've just got to tweak our cash flow model and, you know, we can scale it for another 10 years. Well, I'm too arrogant. I was like, I could make this money anywhere. So I didn't, it wasn't so much like I hated the business. It was, it was fine. I, I enjoyed a lot of aspects to it, but it didn't suit the lifestyle that I wanted. Um, and I kind of felt and feel it like, well, I can make that kind of money doing whatever I put my mind to. So why not put my mind to something, um, that suits the life that I want 
What's the life that More you clearly. want? What's what's the lifestyle that you are aspiring to have? Well, I don't. I'm kind of over-employed, but the business I had after that was a car dealership, uh, which I've subsequently sold. So I'm kind of over-employed in inventory and risk and, and liability and you know, one big lawsuit problem, project gone bad, can kind of put any company I'm working on out of business. So uh, what I'm doing now is much more consultative and like, hey, I know how to do all this stuff. I just don't have the interest of building a bunch of employees and offices and inventory and all that good stuff. But I still, I'm so passionate about entrepreneurs. It's not like I can just, you know, play golf or, you know, go do something not related. So I'm helping other business owners grow their business and living vicariously through them. So I get all the fun of, um, you know, kind of helping other guys grow. I get paid very well and I don't have any employees overhead or nonsense. Did what role did your divorce have on your thinking as it relates to exits and your desire to get out of killer shade? I mean, did, did it play a role at all in, in, in shaping your thinking on this? It did play a role in shaping the outcome, but not my desire. Um, so I, I'm going to answer a question that you didn't ask because anytime I get a chance to get in the soapbox, I do. Um, the reason I got divorced is I was I had a mistress of my business the first 10 years I was married. We got married. I got married when I was 22, divorced when I was 30. And I was just all about business, all about business. And I was a member of EO, which I think you mentioned was a lot of your, your, your members are probably familiar with their members of. And everybody in it was just fired up about business and super passionate, which is great. Nothing against that. But I truly neglect my family life. And when I got divorced, I realized, man, everything I was humping for and, you know, working so hard to achieve was tied up in my wife and my son and, and security for them and family trips together and the home and all that stuff. You take that away. The money meant literally nothing. Um, so I just encourage everybody that might be on that path of I'm doing well financially and I'm, I'm, I'm humping, I'm getting at it, but, and I'll come back to my family later that you lose a family that the money means nothing. So that was the first piece. Second piece is it really, it's funny that I had that. Um, I wish I could say I was this genius and kind of figured it out, but I didn't, I had that business with lots of three or four or five little silos all doing a couple hundred thousand each, um, that when I got divorced, I, I had to shut down that business cause we owned it jointly and so I want to start a new business. So I didn't have anything, you know, just didn't have, you know, I, I didn't want to work for, you know, with that partner that I was no longer married to. Um, and I just, I was so kicked in the nuts about life and everything. I just didn't want to go to work. I didn't care anymore for the first time. I just got up and I didn't care, but I had pretty substantial child support and alimony obligations. So if I didn't make a bunch of money, I was going to jail. So I didn't really have a lot of options <laughs> to not work. Um, so I really got to the point where I'm like, I'll go to work. Um, prior to that, I always been super professional and super like, I've got to put on this face. If we're going to get good contracts, I've got to act like I'm this, but you know, cause I was young, I was like, you know, 22 to 30. So, you know, I'm dealing with 50 year old contractors that have, you know, no, forgotten more about contracting than I know. So I had to be all professional. I felt when I got divorced and started the new company, killer shade, just by the name, you can tell, I said, I'm not doing any of that stuff. I'm just going to be me. I'm not going to put on a mask. Every employee, we're all going to be us. We'll probably offend 90% of the people, but the 10% that get it will love us and they'll probably pay our bills. And turns out it worked out really the reverse. 90% of people went nuts and said, I love this vibe. I want to be a part of it. Let me in. And 10% were offended and we didn't need them anyway. <laughs> so let's get back into the actual transaction itself. So you make this decision to sell Killer Shade. You've, you've, you've gone through these life events. You hate the cash cycle that the business has and it's time to get out. Take us through the actual transaction itself. I mean, did you hire an M&A professional to take you to market? Did you get uh, someone that came to you? Uh, unsolicited. What, what did that look like? 
I had a business broker that I had a relationship with. I can't remember. I've, I'd known him for years. We hadn't, I don't know that we'd done any transactions. I just knew him and trusted him. Uh, he was fairly well respected in my state. And I just said, here's what I want. If you can get it, uh, you know, I'll sell. He said, I can absolutely get it. And uh, took about a year, I think, total from when I talked to him to when maybe more, a uh, year to maybe 16 months to start to finish out, out and out. You said, here's what I want. I'm assuming there was a number that you wanted to get. Correct. And again, it was kind of the nice thing is I wasn't desperate. And so I was totally willing to say, if I can't get that, then I will, you know, I'll continue running my hugely profitable business and not loving it. That's I was in an okay spot in life. So how did you come up with the number? What was the number being drive, driven by? Really what I felt it was worth. Um, how did you know what well, it was I, worth? It was literally totally my opinion. Um, here's what it's worth to me, which since I'm the only one selling it, I, I had full, say I wanted $100 million. He's like, well, no one's going to pay that. Well, then I continue to run it. Um, so it really wasn't, uh, you know, uh, hey, I, this is what, uh, that my only research was this is what it is worth to me to to get the cash now and not have to work for it for the next X amount of years um, and all the work, risk, and uh, headache associated with that. I guess I'm curious about this because I think a lot of entrepreneurs have this question like, what's my number? What's my, my exit trigger price? And, uh, you know, I think I've heard lots of people, you know, approach it differently. Some people say, you know, I need this much to retire and therefore that's my number. Or... You know, I, you know, my buddy in my forum group got X times multiple, therefore I want to get X times multiple. You know, I'd love to dig a little bit deeper here on this idea that you had this number, that that's what it was worth to you. But again, what, where does that come from? I mean, well, must I think a lot of that has to do with why you're selling and the stage of life that you're selling. If I was 68 years old and felt like I was unable or unwilling physically to run the business and my family was an X kind of community and I need, had this much need, I would, my decision-making process would have been completely different. In that I was 35 years old, um, I was at no intention of retiring. I just wanted to put my efforts somewhere else. It was for me, and again, I'm not saying this is how you should do it or this is what your company's worth. For me, it was like, you know, say just to make the numbers easy, say that the company's making a million bucks cash a year, um, or profit a year, not even cash, say a million dollars profit a year. Well, if I got a million, it's like, well, I could just work an extra year and get that. If I got 10 million, well, I'd have to work 10 years to get that and I'd have to wait 10 years to get it and there's all sorts of risk. So, you know, for 400,000, not interested. For a million, I'll just keep doing it. For 2 million, I'll probably still keep doing it. But at some point it's like, well, I can get all that cash now. I don't have to do the work for it and the risk is removed. I get paid today as opposed to, um, over time, those were the three things that were like, this is what I need to get out of it. And again, I'm not, it's by no means am I saying this is how you should or the right way. That was, you're asking how I did it. That's how, that's how I came about it. And again, I figured I'm the only guy with this business. So if the, the market tells me that's an insane number, well then I don't sell. It's no problem. Got it. And so what multiple of earnings did you ultimately sell for? I think we didn't even get three. Like it was, we're in construction and that's kind of a, something I learned uh, that exit, I feel like we got top, top, top because we were so positive in cash and he bought it with like $2 million in contracts coming. I don't even think we got three times uh, uh, earnings. Got it. And and so walk me through that transaction. So the business broker, I'm assuming, is taking the business to a few people to try to, I mean, did he list it on a public website or was it all kind of confidential and you're, you're privately meeting with a few people? How did he approach uh, that? Good. 
the what he did on the back end, I wasn't, you know, I didn't super pay attention to because I was just running my business. Um, he did a good job of confidentiality. Like no one was able to kind of get the name and me and, you know, it wasn't like there was a lot of people through. I think actually the first guy that I actually met was the guy that bought it. I don't recall. I may have spoken on the phone with someone prior, but the, the only person I met face to face and certainly the only person that came to the shop and met the employees and all that was the ultimate buyer. Um, the two bits of feedback I did want to give when I heard kind of what, who your audience was and, and what I was going to be interviewed on is I did get two kind of gems or two kind of things that really helped, um, which I would absolutely want to, if I had a brother or sister selling a business, I'd want them to know. Is that something I can talk about? Yeah, go for it. Go for it. Cool. Two very specific. One, and I, this happened in the car dealership as well. I've always been very meticulous about uh, records and bookkeeping. No cash, no skimming, no never, not for a dollar, not for a hundred dollars, not for $10,000. I just ran everything right. We paid our sales tax. We paid our uh, income tax. Nothing went in the in the pocket. And that wasn't really to sell. That was just because I always feel if an employee sees me taking $200 in cash and put it in my pocket as opposed to running it through the system, he's going to figure, well, you know, boss gets 200, I'll take 50. And it, it, I just, that was wasn't for me. Um, and the, the broker I worked with and the bank that ultimately uh, Wells Fargo was in on the deal as being the lender for a lot of the money, those books uh, really served me well. So if you are looking to exit, keep for the, you know, ideally go backwards or start now and sell in two years. You want two years of solid books to the penny. So if the guy started beating me up on anything, I could go, here's the receipt that goes with that thing and that line in the PL of that piece of this, whatever. And there was zero question. And um, that made it so much easier for the financing to go through, for the buyer to be comfortable, for the broker to really stand behind it. And I was shocked that he sold some larger companies that I did. He's like, the bookkeeping is atrocious and it makes it impossible for me. You know, because a lot of times people try to sell, uh, hide money from the government and they end up hiding that profit from the buyer. And even if they convince the buyer he's going to do it, the funding source, whether it's a bank or a, whoever, is, is not going to fall for that. And they want to see real profit. Got it. So you had clean books. You said you had two pieces of advice you'd give your brother or sister. Yeah. So clean was the first. The second one, um, crap, what was it? Oh, I continued because it, it, it was a protracted deal. I think once we'd had a deal, a signed contract, we still didn't close for, I mean, this is like four or five years ago. So it feels like three to six months. I'm not sure, but it wasn't, it wasn't instant by any stretch. And I, I actually learned this in a uh, birthing a giants program through EO like a decade earlier. I forget who said it, but I remember it ever since then. Um, I worked my tail off to make the company more valuable every day. I worked harder when it was under contract to make it more valuable than before. A lot of guys do the opposite. They've got the contract, the, the deal's done in their head. They're in Hawaii mentally. They're done with their business and it becomes less and less valuable by the day because they take their eye off the ball. And then what happens at the closing table, that puts the guy in a position where he says, hey, I'm going to give you a 30% haircut. And I know that I've already met the employees. You've told everybody, everything's done. And, uh, you know, your, your $5 million is now three, take it or don't, we don't care. And that, that can be devastating. Um, I put myself in the position where if he tried to pull that crap, I'd, I'd be able to look him right in the eye and go, you know, as well as I do, I've added value to this company since we started, you want to play that game. We're going to add to the price. And if you don't want it, take a hike because I've really added value. So just make sure when you're in that process of selling, um, until the check clears, the deal is not done, no matter how nice or cool or, um, friendly, the people that you're working with are when the check clears, it's done until then it is your business and you need to make it as valuable as possible more so in the negotiation stages than less so, which is what most people do. Why did the negotiation take so long? It was the bank. They, uh, anytime there's, that's another thing. If you can get a cash buyer or a, 
even if he's borrowing from some sort of a non-bank entity, it was Wells Fargo for crying out loud. And I think he had an SBA on it or something, but they were just, uh, they, they didn't use a lot of common sense. They just dragged their feet and it's hard to negotiate, right? Cause if the buyer's jerking you around, you can just go, Hey, this is it, take it or leave it. Um, but he was like, I'm so sorry. I, this, I, the, it was the bank, right? It wasn't, we were all trying to play nice to make the bank who had the money um, get along. So that's really what took so long. So walk me through the mechanics of your deal. You mentioned it uh, two or three times earnings. Um, the bank was financing it. So I'm assuming the buyer of your business had to guarantee the loan. D- did you have any sort of vendor take back or any sort of, did, did you have to uh, lend any of the money to the buyer? Yeah, there's about 20% of the money that um, we took back but before I accepted that, I kind of in my mind with my wife decided if he never pays a penny of that, we would sell for the cash price that we're getting at the closing table, uh, which was good because he paid 20% of it and then walked on it. And even though it was hundreds of thousands of dollars, it's like, well, you know, maybe it cost me 200000 to litigate and I get a piece of paper and he goes bankrupt and now it's out the window. So um, for me, yeah, we took back probably 15, 20%. And we got 20% of that. So we only got ultimately maybe 85% of our, of our sales price. But I was, again, I had made, made up in my mind that I would sell it for that price cash, no matter what. What was the uh, interest rate? What was the note on that, uh, on that loan you gave the buyer? There was actually two or three. And I don't even, because he didn't pay it, so it didn't matter. But they were all like, you know, 5 to 8%, nothing super low or super high. Got it. Got it. And the, the bank, uh, Wells Fargo, eventually did come to the table and, and, and finance the business for him? Gave him the money to buy the business? Yeah. He only had to put hundreds of thousands of dollars in. They, 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 they put the, the vast majority in. Got it. That makes sense. So, what was the stickiest part of the negotiation with the buyer? I realized the bank was, was making things difficult, but directly with the buyer, what were the deal points that were the hardest to get through? Well, and that's another thing, which I hate to give his advice because it's really hard to, if you can't do it, you can't do it. I was truly in a place where I didn't need to sell the business. I knew I was making a lot of cash. I didn't particularly enjoy what I was doing. But financially, I was fine. Emotionally, I was fine. So there weren't a lot of sticking points. I was very much like, this is the deal. If you want it, great. If you don't, then don't. But that, that's that. Um, and I was able to do that and project that because it wasn't an actor. You know, I wasn't trying to game the guy. That was my position. Um, so there really weren't a lot of sticking points because that was that. I got a full price offer. We, we did it the bank actually did chew me down a little bit because they're like, we won't fund or we won't do this or whatever. And it was, you know, less than 10% of the number. Uh, and I tolerated that, but there really wasn't a lot of sticking points that didn't involve the bank. Cause my posture was, this is what I'm willing to sell at. I felt like you, he needed to buy more than I needed to sell. So I had no problem with him. Why well, at no point had he backed out, what have I been devastated? Got it. How did you guys deal with the working capital that you needed to have in the company when you handed the keys over to the new owner. Uh, that was on him. There was, I, I think I told him maybe a hundred thousand bucks or so. Like he didn't need millions, but if he walked in, if you know, he gave his whole net worth to the bank, that would have been a problem. So I gave him a recommendation of what I thought he needed. And beyond that, it, that's, that's up to him. So he, he takes over the receivables. Cause you mentioned the day he kind of took over the, the business, there was almost a million dollars of receivables. 
City. Well, yeah, that was actually part of our, our dispute is there was quite a bit of receivables. And the deal we made was everything that is billed before we take over, I will collect. Everything that is billed after, of course, you will collect. And that went along fine for 95% of the receivables. And then there was like this 50000 bucks at the end that he started collecting and cashing the checks that were to me. And uh, that's and then we sued him over that. It was it, that got to be a big mess. So we actually lost maybe fifty thousand dollars receivables that he just took. That again, same old. Well, I could sue and spend fifty thousand dollars to get a judgment for fifty thousand dollars that I may or may not collect. Got it. So how would you approach the working capital and the receivables piece differently if you were to do it over again? Again, you know, giving advice to your sister or brother. What what would your counsel be along receivables and and how to treat those in the transaction? It's a tough one because the only thing that we could have possibly done is written a tighter contract, but that, you know, you get lawyers involved and then maybe that tighter contract blows up the whole deal. And again, am I going to do a seven figure, blow up a seven figure deal over 50 grand in receivables? So I don't, I wish I had some epiphany of here's how I would have done it differently or better. Um, I, I don't, I just, it was a bit of a headache and that's just one of the things that you got to unwind. There's, we happen to have being a business where there's a lot of work in progress and a lot of money owed and a lot of jobs operating. And that was just something that had to be worked through. And I don't know that I can give any specific advice that would be helpful to, to, you know, the people at large, each of each, each company is going to have to figure out what that looks like in their industry, their particular amount and all that. When did you tell your employees you were selling? Yeah, that was, that was, that was not fun. Um, and I can't, again, not a recommendation, just how I did it along with the kind of concept we talked about earlier with the deal is done when it's done and not a second before I was uncomfortable telling the employees that this thing was happening um, until it happened, which again, the, the broker didn't like it. The buyer didn't like it. And I said, well, that's tough. This is my company until you give me money. You've not given me any money. If you want to meet the employees and, and do all that, you're going to have to give like, you know, a hundred thousand bucks and that's non-refundable. Um, cause you can't just come in and drop a bomb on my, my place. And then that puts in, that puts me in a bad situation. Had he met the employees and everyone knew that we were selling. And then he pulled a uh, closing table shenanigans. I'm not in the place of, Oh, well, I'm confident you can leave. Cause now all my employees are like, Oh, we're selling what's going on. So, um, for good, bad or indifferent, I said, you may meet the employees once your check clears, not before period. Um, which is what happened. And I, I think the employees were pretty shocked and they probably didn't appreciate it, but it's like, you know what? what, what does it matter? I sold it to a good guy. You know, obviously I shouldn't say, obviously we had negotiated like, Hey, these are all good people. Um, I expect you in good faith to, to continue employing them. And he felt like, Oh my gosh, are you kidding me? I need them more than they need me. If they, he was like, they can't all quit. And I'm like, you can't all fire them. So I really, I had no fear for the employees that, you know, he was going to come in and fire everybody and in some sort of advance notice would have helped. So morally I didn't feel bad because they weren't really like, Hey, you screwed me. They were just like, this is a shock and we don't like it. But it's like, well, there's a big transaction for me here and I'm not going to screw it up just to tell you guys so you could be comfortable and not telling you didn't, you know, he employed them and I believe they all stayed. So it, it kind of worked out okay. They just were like, wow, shocking. Do you ever see any of them around town? Uh, I live in Phoenix, town of 5 million. So no, uh, I'm friends with many of them on Facebook. It will, you know, we're, we're certainly friendly. Um, actually, the car dealership I had, one of the uh, former employees, uh, came and bought a bunch of cars for me. So he'd keep me in the loop. So you kind of hear, you know, where there's still kind of a network where I'm friendly with most people, but I wouldn't, it's not like I bump into him at the grocery store. Yeah. I, I guess where I was going at was, did you get a sense that there was a lot of animosity that, um, you know, Mike got the big check and here we are left with this new owner. Did you, did you, did you get that sense that there was a divide between you and your former employees? 
No, not at all. And there might have been, but I really, because I really truly cared about them. We'd have them to our house and we'd have, I mean, they were important people to me. Um, so I think the only animosity was, man, we thought this is something you would have told us. Um, but once I got to explain to a lot of the upper management afterwards, like, here's what happened and here's why they got it and they understood and they knew I wasn't trying to harm them. And I don't know, uh, you know, and he was, a, you know, he's not like he was this terrible person. It was just different, right? It's not like I'd screwed them and turned them over to this monster that was going to be abusive. He was, you know, a, a decent boss. So to them, it was, it was just like, it was change, which was scary, but it's not like their compensation pay changed or nothing truly changed. So I think it was more concern over big change, but I, I didn't get a lot of animosity because I stayed afterwards to help and do the transition. And I didn't, I didn't get any anim animosity from that all. How long did you have to stay for the transition? <laughs> that's, that's a funny uh, little deal. Um, short answer long, the year prior, I'd promised my son that I'd take him to Thailand and something was happening again, construction, big project. I just felt like I couldn't leave. So I had to go to him and be like, boy, please, please, please let me out of my obligation. I really uh, will go next year. If you just trust me, I promise we'll go. Please, you know, I gave you my word. Would it be okay if we didn't go? And he was super cool about it and said, yeah, that's fine. He was devastated because he really wanted to go, um, but was, you know, loving and kind and said, that's fine, dad. Um, so when we started negotiating for the purchase, it was, like I said, four or five months prior to me leaving. And I said, I will be going to Thailand on this day, whether you buy the business or don't buy the business, whether you've owned it for a day or a week or a month, none of that's relevant. I will be flying to Thailand on this day, period. Um, and what happened with his bank kind of dragging the feet, dragging the feet, I think we closed like two weeks after or before I went to Thailand. Um, and I said, I will, as I've told you this whole time, I will be going to Thailand on the day. I'll call and Skype you every day for an hour. I'll answer any questions that you have. So I stayed the two weeks before we went on our trip and it was miserable. I'll tell you, that's one thing I hated, hated, hated. So I would encourage other people to be clear about this. He basically wanted me to run the company. Like I was there to teach him, here's what you need to do. Here's how to do it. Um, here, you know, here's how everything works. Here's how we've been so successful was my understanding of my time there. His understanding of the time there was I was going to run the company for him and he was just going to kind of watch. Um, so we kind of butted head quite a bit in terms of like, dude, you know, this $2 million of work you've got, a lot of that I sold a year ago or six months ago or 19 months ago, you got to start selling now for two years from now. And he, he was more focused on changing the logo and fooling around with stupid stuff that I'm like, dude, you need, this is what you need to do. And he kind of wanted to run around doing that stuff while I ran the business for him. And I kept saying, in two weeks, I'm going to be gone. If you don't know how to run this business, if I'm running it for you, then you're, you're going to be very unhappy. Um, so anyway, that was a very frustrating time, I'm sure for both of us. And then I actually called him uh, two or three times, the first one and two and three days we landed in Thailand, he never even picked up. And that was the last of the training uh, he, he got. How's the business doing today? I, I don't think it's doing well. <laughs> it's still in business. I don't have privy to the thing, but he and I don't have a good relationship. Like I said, he stopped paying me. He, uh, anyway, I, I, I don't think it's doing well, but I couldn't, I, I, I don't, I'm not privy to insider information. Did you indulge yourself in any expense, any, any purchase that, that you used as sort of a trophy for selling your business? Honestly, it's funny. The Thailand trip was it. Cause it wasn't the money and I'm not a big, like, you know, I've got a, I drive a, you know, 2011 BMW 323. So like cars and, you know, I'd live in a nice house, but by no means a mansion that that stuff's never turned me on. The indulgence was Thailand. Cause it was whatever we we're there for 14 days or 17 days, or whatever. Um, but I didn't have to call 
and say, how's everything going? Did that check come in? Who's, how's the project going? Is this guy pissed off? What's, you know, I didn't have to do any of that. So my indulgence was the ability to just sit on my bit, my butt and have zero business to worry about. How are the employees? Is this guy pissed off? What's going, you know, just none of that. That was by far the biggest and best indulgence I could have got myself. Great advice for sure. Mike, where do people reach you? Um, right now, then go to thefreakinggenius.com. I've got a podcast, a book. I do a little coaching. Uh, feel free to check it out. Thefreakinggenius.com. Mike Campion, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, glad I could help, brother. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.